Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. And we're here every Saturday to talk with you about the markets and the economy and to hopefully provide you with some good information from which to make informed investment decisions. Now, this week has been pretty good. Uh, There really hasn't been a whole lot of news, but there's been a whole lot of anticipation. Uh, We have seen the vaccines come out. And of course, as I'm recording this on Friday, where the word is still not out about any stimulus, so I apologize about not being able to comment on that. But uh, the good news is, is that uh, yesterday, Friday, the markets closed, uh, well, up across the board, not really up across the board for the day, but they had set all three major market indicators as they did on Thursday, set new all-time highs before settling down ahead of the weekend. The Dow ended the week at 30,179, the S&P at 3,709. NASDAQ rose to 12,759, the Russell 2000 also hitting new all-time highs, the small cap index ending at 1969. Gold settled at 1883 an ounce, silver at 2584. Crude up at 49.10 a barrel, I think that's the highest in about nine months. Ten-year rose to 0.94% and soft white week quoted at 640 a bushel. So year-to-date, we've got the Dow up about 6%. We've got the S&P up about 15%. The NASDAQ is is up about 47%. And the Russell, again, the small cap, is up 19%. So come Tuesday, we're going to get the second of the three updates on the third quarter GDP growth. Thursday, uh, Christmas Eve, we close, the market closes at 10 our time, and of course, uh, closed all day on Christmas. So this will be the last show of the year because I won't be uh, doing a show on Christmas, and the next one will be on the 2nd of January. So here we are. Um, Now, we have had, in this most recent market, the most amount of new highs since 2016. There's all kinds of this news out there that, again, doesn't seem to get much play by our friends in the media. Now, each of the major market indicators, as I said, did a double on Thursday and Friday with the new all-time highs. S&P has racked up 64 gains each day of at least 1%. That's the highest number in 70 years for the index. Now, the Russell 2000, which, again, is a small cap index. Now, I say small cap, that implies smaller companies. Now, smaller when it comes to these kinds of data is uh, a relative term. You're still talking multi-billion dollar size firms. But nonetheless, uh, the Russell 2000 is now up more than the S&P. That's the first time this year, uh, and that's according to Dow Jones. And if they do continue at this level, it'd be uh, outperforming the index for the first time since 2016. So uh, that's pretty good. That's a change, isn't it? We're going to talk about that a little bit. Now, one of the reasons that Russell has outperformed the S&P just recently is because of the economic momentum over this recent period. And of course, the vaccine announcements that have given everybody a little brighter outlook uh, for the economy. See, and and what this does, this benefits the smaller companies a little bit more because those companies 
Well, the bad news is they're threatened more when the economy sinks than they are more benefited when it stabilizes. So consistent with this, you could call it dynamic for small caps, the, uh, well, Morgan Stanley analyst brought this up uh, regarding large caps. They say that a strengthening dollar is a notable risk to their stocks, meaning large caps in general. They, uh, Morgan Stanley picked out one in particular uh, as Philip Morris International, you know, the cigarette company. They have a market capitalization of $118 billion, and they say that biggest risk to that company is the strengthening dollar. It, because the company gets revenues from four continents, 40% from Europe. So that would be a, a weakening dollar would help that particular company. So do you remember what happened in the market both before and after December of 2016? Well, of course you don't. But so let me help you. The market had rallied for about 10 months going into that period. And then 2017 ended up being one of the most historic and legendary years for stocks of all time. Now, obviously, you know, here's the, here's the catchphrase, the uh, always appropriate uh, uh, legal phrase, uh, past performance doesn't guarantee future results. So, yeah, we know that, but it's a consideration. Now, see, prices, the prices of shares are a leading indicator. They're pricing in what the economy is going to be doing six to 12 months down the road. When you're looking at earnings, earnings are based on old news. You know, they're kind of lagging indicators and they're just estimates. So I would be more inclined to be looking at how prices are performing than what a bunch of tea leaf readers are deciding uh, how much money, quote unquote, they should make. Now, you may have heard of Tesla. Well, it's the electric car company. And uh, come Monday... They are going to replace a company called Apartment Investment and Management Company in the S&P 500. So, oh, and it'll also be added to the S&P 100, which is, they're going to replace the Occidental Petroleum there. The price at which uh, Tesla will be added to the index was based on its closing price on Friday, which was its all-time high at $695 a share. Now, this is, uh, they're going to add, the S&P management is going to add Tesla in one big chunk. It's, that's the largest rebalancing of the index in history. See, it's, it's estimated that there are, the passive funds which track the S&P 500 are going to have to buy more, now this is all of them, they're going to have to buy more than $85 billion worth of Tesla shares, while at the same time, selling $85 billion of the rest of the index to make room for it. So with about $11.2 trillion in assets benchmarked to the S&P and about $4.6 trillion of the total in index funds, that means there's going to be a lot of significant portfolio adjustments going to be made to make room for Tesla. So Friday, there was a lot more volume. Again, the market didn't reflect it all that much, but a lot of people were getting themselves set up for Monday. Now, one just kind of tech thing that I found kind of interesting um, is uh, not directly related to trading, but sort of. There's these folks called high-frequency traders, HFTs. They use all the whiz-bang stuff, you know, all the high-tech uh, high, uh, and what have you. Well, they've got a new experimental type of fiber cable that's supposedly speeding up their systems by billionths of a second. Billionths of a second. And that's a good thing, they say. 
This is, uh, instead of being a solid strand of glass, which is the fastest way to get through these, uh, the data out there now, this hollow core glass fiber is empty. And so it has dozens of parallel elf air-filled channels, which are thinner than a human hair. But it's 30% faster than standard uh, uh, glass fiber. That's because light travels about 50% faster through air than it does through glass. So these, these how would I say, minuscule fractions of second uh, are what these high-frequency traders are looking for to make the difference between profits and losses. Good thing you're not one of those guys, isn't it? Boy, what a thing to have to worry about. Anyway, so did you know a little bit of cleaning up of uh, misnomers? You know, you hear about the FANG stocks. It's uh, Facebook and Google and Amazon and all of those nice folks. Well, and, and they say, oh, those are the tech shares. And I actually not read it. 80% of the FANG stocks have a zero rating in the tech sector. Facebook and Google are in the communications index, nothing in tech. Netflix is in communications, nothing in tech. Amazon is 21% of consumer discretionary, but nothing in tech. You know, the journalists are trying to put everybody in tech. It uses a computer, I think. And, and so um, they've got Airbnb and DoorDash in there, too. And neither one of those are in the tech sector. They're both in the communications index. So... Just when, you know, people start talking about tech, you know, use it with a grain of salt or something like that. We're going to be talking right now uh, about some of these uh, economic reports which came out this past week. There weren't too many of them, but I think they're uh, fairly significant when you look at them individually. First, we saw retail sales, and there was a lot of wailing and moaning uh, uh, that when the Commerce Department said that uh, they had dropped, retail sales had dropped 1.1% last month. However... The Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which uh, tracks numbers uh, very closely, I guess is a good way to say it, found households reporting the highest level of expected spending growth since July of 2016. They're looking for, and this is from the Fed of New York, uh, a predicted rise of uh, almost 4% a year down the road. And that was driven by uh, households earning under $50,000 a year. So this isn't just a... Uh, high-end deal by any stretch. And as we've been seeing in that high-frequency data we were just talking about, the, the, the lockdowns are starting to definitely affect economic data again, with consumers seemingly getting more conservative, waiting for another stim package to arrive. You know, I think we can expect further gains in the months to come for the non-store retailers as the states continue these lockdown restrictions. We don't expect a massive decline in overall retail sales like we did earlier this year, because, well, quite frankly, both companies and consumers have adapted. You know, it's important to keep in mind how much progress has been made since April. Retail sales were down just about 20% from a year ago in April. And now, even with the decline in October and November, uh, retail sales are actually up 4% from November last year and were 3.6% higher than February pre-virus high watermark. What that means in American? retail sales have had a full V-shaped recovery. So for somebody to be singing the blues about a 1.1% drop in one month is not looking at the long-term trend. Yet another reason to dismiss the headlines, he added. 
So core sales, which exclude the most volatile categories, and that's cars and building materials, gas sales, those are up 4.7% from a year ago. Now, up is up, right? So tell those people to keep them to themselves. Okay. Now, the industrial sector, sector continues to recover. Uh, both auto manufacturing and non-auto manufacturing contributed to the increase. So uh, that's good news. Now, the Fed had a meeting this week, this past week, and uh, it said they turned up their economic expectations slightly for the end of the year as well as going into next year. The bank says they expect the gross domestic product to drop just 2.4% for this year compared to what they are looking for as a 3.7 drop in September. And they look for growth next year to 4.2%, up from 4 They're keeping their inflation estimates at 1.2% and maybe getting as high as one8 into next year. But uh, really beyond that, not too much uh, to be expected, I don't believe. So, oh, uh, and, uh, you know, federal debt burdens could be more of a challenge in the future, but only after we've had a few years of rising interest rates and continued borrowing. So the nominal and real net worth of the U.S. private sector, it's at its highest level ever. Highest level ever. That's what I meant to say. Real net worth in the U.S., tends to increase about 3%, 3 3.6% on average over time. You can look it up. That's pretty dang good. Yeah, yes, we have had huge setbacks along the way, but in the end, things have continued to improve. And in my opinion, what really counts is the aggregate wealth of our country, since that wealth is a function of all our stuff. Roads, bridges, trucks, stores, houses, factories, corporations, uh, personal services, apps, all of that that are available to each and every one of us. And on this basis, it's clear to me that things have never been so good. And never before has the average person enjoyed the benefits of such an elaborate infrastructure as we have today. I would hope that you would feel that you would agree with that. Now, I had some notes from Social Security, too. I just wanted to bring you up to speed. They're uh, not fates of nations kinds of issues, but just some uh, little fine-tuning going into the new year. Um... You're going to get a little bit of a raise next year. Uh, don't spend it all at once because it's 1.3%. Uh, now, that's based on the inflation rate uh, of uh, this year. So, you know, it's not a plot. I mean, that's all the inflation was. It wasn't much to do. So they give you these annual cost of living adjustments, which are that's short for COLA, C-O-L-A, um, every year based on if there is any inflation. So next year, they say uh, you expect a, uh, an average gain of about $20. Uh, so once again, up is up, but <laughs> no big parties as a result of this. Now, you're going to have to earn more cash to uh, get in on your retirement benefits. Although it may seem that everybody gets Social Security, it's not really something that's given away. You, in order to qualify, you have to have earned what they call 40 lifetime work credits to receive retirement benefits. Now, you get four, you can earn up to four a year, four of those credits a year. The amount needed for a work credit changes from year to year. This year, for example, you earn one credit for each $1,410 in wages or self-employment income in that quarter. Okay, 
<clears throat> excuse me, many people are obviously going to earn more than the minimum number of credits you need to be eligible for benefits. But to be eligible for most types of benefits, you must have earned an average of one work credit for each calendar year between 21 and the year in which you reach age 62 or become disabled or blind, up to a maximum of 40 credits. And a, min, a, min, a minimum of six work credits is required regardless of age. I want to talk with you now about some of these uh, economic reports that came out this past week because I think some of them were pretty good. Now, on one hand, uh, let me start with retail sales. Um, there was some wailing and moaning among the usual suspects that uh, retail sales were reported as having dropped 1.1% last month, and that was from the Commerce Department. However, the folks at the Federal Reserve of New York found that households reported found households are reporting that the highest level expected spending growth since July of 2016 and are looking at a rise in spending uh, for a year down the road of 3.7%. And uh, by the way, that increase is driven by households under earning under $50,000. So, you know, you, when they come up with these, this much for a month and is better than, worse than for a month, who cares? You know, look at the trends. How much over multiple months or even years, how are those things going? What happens month to month? I mean, you know, we've got that big snowstorm back east. You know, that can mess up things for a while. Certainly the virus, all of these things can have near-term impacts that don't have long-term effects. So, you know, I think we can expect further gains in the months to come for these non-store retailers, you know, as states continue their lockdowns. But... We don't expect a massive decline in overall retail sales like we saw earlier this year because, well, both companies and consumers have adapted. I think it's also important to keep in mind how much progress has been made in uh, our retail sales since April. In April, the retail sales were reported as being down 20% from a year ago. And uh, now retail sales are up 4.1% from November 2019, and we're 3.6% higher than February in the, in the previous high water mark. So what that says is that we have made an entire V-shaped recovery in the retail. So 1.1% eh, that's included in there, but they didn't tell you about that. They just said it's a 1.1% drop. Read through the headlines, folks, if you want to get the rest of the story, as Mr. Harvey used to say. We saw a recovery in the industrial sector continuing in November. Both auto manufacturing and not auto manufacturing contributed to the increase. And even better, readings in the prior months were revised higher. Now, the Fed had a meeting this week, and they shared with us some of their thinking. And I will now attempt to share some of that with you. They said that um, they did turn up their economic expectations slightly for the end of the year as well as into next year. The bank's looking for a real GDP gross domestic product uh, to fall just 2.4% this year. They were anticipating a 3.7% drop in September. And they're looking for growth next year in the GDP to 4.2%. So that's a nice jump. Now, the Fed kept inflation estimates for this year unchanged at 1.2%, and they see inflation running up to 1.8% next year. 
Now, the ultimate determiner of how much any change in inflation really matters is, of course, the Fed itself. Because either inflation pressures will push the Fed to make monetary policy less accommodative, or they don't. Now, as far as Goldman Sachs is concerned, inflation won't be changing any central bank calculations next year, even as Goldman expects longer-term government bond yields could rise as the global economy strengthens. You know, I think the updates to their outlook, the Fed's outlook from their meeting this week were pretty good. The, the GDP and inflation projections were revised higher, as I said. Employment rate, unemployment rate forecasts move lower. That's the way they're supposed to be going. All are signaling a stronger economic recovery than what the Feds thought was possible earlier this year. Now, the members of the Fed, the board, the FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee, the folks who actually do the voting on the Fed, they've made it clear that they don't see the need to raise interest rates anytime soon. Matter of fact, only one member of the 17 predicted uh, a need to hike rates in 2022 Strong majority still against any hikes in 2023, but they did say, the Fed that is, uh, that they made it clear to intend to do whatever they can to help the economy. Now, the Fed has also said that it will take a more lenient attitude toward inflation. I think within reason, that's probably right. It gives you a little plus or minus uh, action just in case, you know, for just aberrant behavior. Now, we can get a clue by looking at the bond market. The 10-year break-even rate is the market's best guess as to what inflation will be. And while the 10-year break-even rate has gone up in recent months, it's still well below 2%, which is the Fed's long-rate target for inflation. And Mr. Powell also added uh, on Wednesday that he doesn't think stocks are necessarily overpriced, given how low interest rates are. These artificially low interest rates are a definite benefit for stocks, which we believe remain undervalued and poised for their continued growth in the month ahead, excuse me, in the year ahead. Most of the increase in asset values we've seen since the uh, 08 recession has been healthy. Financial assets have taken off, while real estate and debt have increased only moderately. And there has, this has not been the debt-fueled expansion we saw ahead of 2008 by any stretch. The leverage of households, which is total debt as a percentage of total assets, that's in in this country, has dropped by almost 38% since 2008, and it hasn't been this low since 1983. Without all that leverage in the system, the system is obviously and basically more stable. Now, federal debt, so that's debt service costs as a percentage of GDP. So you can think of it, it's like you're your own household debt burden where you take debt service payments as a percentage of your annual income. Well, right now, that federal debt is actually historically quite low. And federal debt ratios, debt ratios have increased, but the debt burden has decreased, and that's, well, simply because interest rates have fallen, even as we've seen that total debt go up. The debt burdens could become more of a challenge in the future, but only after we've had years of rising interest rates and more borrowings. Here, here, this is something we all need to feel good about. The nominal and real net worth of the U.S. private sector is at its highest level ever. Highest level ever. Real net worth in the U.S. tends to go up by about 3.6% on average over time. And that's pretty dang good, and yep, you can look it up. 
there have been huge setbacks along the way from time to time, but in the end, things have continued to improve. I believe quite strongly that what really counts is the aggregate wealth of our country, since that wealth is a function of all our stuff. Roads, bridges, trucks, stores, personal services, apps, whatever. I mean, it's all available to all of us. And on this basis, it's clear to me anyway, that things have never been so good. Never before has the average person enjoyed the benefits of such an elaborate infrastructure as we see today. And speaking of infrastructure, have you heard about real estate? Yes, we have that here. And, and according to the latest uh, Wells Fargo Housing Market Index, home builder sentiment had its second highest reading in history this past week, and that goes back to 1985. The chairman of the National Association of Home Builders says, and I'm quoting, housing demand is strong entering 2021. However, the coming year will see housing affordability challenges as inventory remains low and construction costs are rising, unquote. Home prices for both existing and new homes are going up rather substantially, as most people know, I would believe. Existing home prices are up due to high demand and short supply. New home prices are rising for the same reason, with additional pressure coming from rising costs for the builders. Now, new home construction does remain a bright spot in the overall economy. And while the biggest gains in the report that National Associates Home Builders report came from multi-unit construction, single-family construction up for the seventh month in a row, highest level since 2007. In other words, before the recession. And thinking future, the permits, building permits rose 6.2% in November, also the highest level since 2007. One of those things we like to say, the trend is our friend. You know, these, this is a series of things that are going uh, in a direct, this is a trend. This is how things go over time. Not just one month where we had a lot of sales. And before we get off into what the uh, strategists and so on have to say about the market, there's a couple of things I want to bring up since it is the end of the year. And uh, you're going to find out about these things if you don't know about them already. And that's capital gains. Um See, if you sell an investment for more than what you paid for it, and this includes being adjusted for dividends and distributions, that's a capital gain. You're going to see this a lot with mutual funds. And and that's where it comes from on, on an unexpected basis a lot of times because the managers are buying and selling things throughout the year and they have to pass the profits legally from those sales to their shareholders. So that's what they call the capital gains distribution. Now, you don't do anything. I mean, if you're buying and selling the shares on your own, that's a different story. But internally, that's what I'm referring to, what the managers are doing on your behalf. Now, you can even you can see distributions even if your uh, uh, shares are down for the year. It's because the shares that were sold in the fund were sold for a profit, not the fund shares of the fund itself. Now, if you're doing this, uh, any capital gains or dividends uh, are non-taxable within a retirement account. However, if you're doing it in a non-retirement account, how much you owe the uncle is going to depend on a couple of things. One, how long did you own it? Um, is it a short-term capital gain? Is it a long-term capital gain? In other words, long-term is something held more than a year. So... Uh, you know, you're, it's always good to have these things in the tax-advantaged accounts. Now, dividends are a little different because, as you may know, 
These are a share of earnings that are paid to shareholders, uh, typically quarterly. Um, and each company has their own process. They don't have their own decisions as to how much and all that kind of stuff. And so if you own individual shares, you may find that the dividends are paid directly to you. If you own a fund, it can distribute the dividends or you can, along with the capital gains, use it to buy more shares within the fund. Now, you get a thing from the Fed's, no, you don't. You get it from the investment firms uh, called a 1099-DIV. It has all your dividend capital gains for the previous year. And if you sold it, uh, a form 1099-B will show your capital gains. Okay? So, um, anyhow, just to be aware of it, if you're seeing distributions, <clears throat> they come automatically into funds uh, if you're even if you're not buying and selling the shares themselves. So it's not something wrong, illegal, nothing. It's just how they work. So now I'm something I want to bring up just because I think it's starting to, you know, we talked earlier a couple times now about trends. Well, you got to identify trends where they get here. Otherwise, you get run over by it. And so I'm kind of acting as your uh, outlier, your uh, your observation post, your 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 scout, if you will, for something that looks as if it may be coming over the next oh, year or so. Now, you know, this last decade saw commodities get crushed. Now, commodities, oil, corn, wheat, uh, all those the things you use, stuff. Well. They've had their prices crushed relative to stocks, bonds, real estate. And for a long time, <laughs> I know this from conversations with clients, having any commodity or commodity stock exposure in a well-diversified portfolio has been a drag on returns, i.e., why do I own this stuff? Okay, well, that's because that's how it's supposed to work. Commodities and their related stock-type companies are historically not correlated with the broader market. What that means is stock market goes up, commodities tend to go down or hold themselves. On the other hand, when the stock market drops, well, then we tend to see some appreciation from the commodity side. They are not at all related in terms of one to the other as far as price. That's what I mean by not correlated. So. Part of the recent strength in commodity prices is due to the recent weakness in the dollar index. And that makes sense because global commodity prices are actually priced in terms of the U.S. dollar. So a weaker dollar would lead to higher commodity prices, all things else being equal. Now, Goldman Sachs <clears throat> sees a new secular commodity bull market coming that would exceed the 2000-2008 commodities bull market. And I think their timing could be pretty good. And having seen what that 2000-2008 commodities bull market was like, <laughs> well, uh, that could be pretty interesting. Their head, there's a Goldman's head of commodity research, a gentleman named Jeffrey Curie, has said that the world is entering a long-lasting bull market for commodities. And most investors aren't positioned for this reality at all. But here's a, for instance, here's what's going on in those markets. Copper prices, iron ore prices, industrial commodity prices have all been surging to new multi-year highs, going past the, the prices that, that were their peaks in 2016. 
Copper price highs have led to tremendous price gains in leading copper stock. Uh, two of them just, you can check them out, Freeport, Mac Moran, and also Southern Copper. They've had some significant moves this year. Next, iron ore prices are up above their 2016 levels, even above their 2013 highs. Now, here we are with the prices going into construction. Okay, Steel prices are up strongly year-to-date this year, and also above their 2016 highs. This from Steel Benchmarker. So the benchmark price for hot rolled sheet steel, which is used for cars and other big things like that, went to a two-year high of $900 a ton. This is according to S&P. And the distributors, the steel distributors, say that their prices and the reduced availability of steel have touched out some panic buying by some manufacturers. So what's, what's going on here is, is that these base metals, not the precious metals, have outperformed this year, particularly since March when the uh, market hit its uh, recent low. Now, at change one, or another change, I should say, the West Texas Intermediate has up at its highest level in nine months. And the Brent, which is the North Sea oil, and the West Texas oil, which is the U.S. oil, have are up for now six weeks, the longest stretch of gain since June. Um, and this sector, of all sectors in the S&P 500, has the highest earnings growth projections by analysts for next year than any. Nothing is even close. Once again, did that hit the news? No. They're talking about Tesla and tech and all that stuff, and that's fine. But um, <laughs> you don't have to be the shiny guy to make the money, you know. Uh, and according to the story, with commodity issues still way out of favor, even after their rally of these past several months, I think it's time to consider diversifying into this sector uh, because the opportunity is still pretty huge in front of us, at least in my opinion. I guess the guys at Goldman as well. But bigger picture, I think investors should start thinking differently about portfolio construction to consider including some commodity components because I believe we're in a reflationary environment, not a disinflationary retirement, excuse me, environment. It, it, well, put it another way. What's worked in the past, which is notably the 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and has done quite well. I don't think it's going to work that well going forward due to this, <clears throat> excuse me, commodity recovery together with the very low bond rates. Now, again, Cor Goldman says corporate earnings will rebound sharply in 2021 after this quarter. So, hey, I'm, I'm happy to support that. But uh, please, when you're doing your reviews of your holdings, <clears throat> consider that, you know, inflation is no meaningful figure. Hasn't been for some time. It averages, going back to the 20s in the U.S., 3% a year. And you can work that math out to see what kind of an effect it has, but it does have an effect. And so... <clears throat> You need to, I think, include that because what happens is when you have these uh, recoveries from the markets, you can see higher rates of inflation just coming out of it right to begin. And that's why I think the Fed is smart to not just knee-jerk as soon as they see inter uh, inflation rates go up to start jumping up interest rates. But that will be for another time. So, Hall of institutional investor, Hall of Fame strategist, a gentleman named Richard Bernstein, 
He's questioning why so many investors are preferring momentum names in technology when the economy is getting ready to boom, per him. He says, fundamentals are improving dramatically as you look toward 21, and it's like nobody cares. The unique opportunities come when fundamentals are improving and nobody cares, he said. You have that issue basically everywhere but tech. But with the vaccines coming into the marketplace, Mr. Bernstein expects stocks closely tied to the economy to see improvement. His sectors, energy, materials, industrials, and small cap value are his uh, top plays. And he closes with one of the big stories for 21 is going to be the huge rebound in earnings. We're coming off a pandemic depressed base. You know, kind of like the... uh, diving board with the chunky guy on the end of it. You know, when he goes off, whoop, here goes the diving board. And another point of view comes from fun stretch Tom Lee. He called the uh, 2020 bounce before most others did. And he says uh, 21 should be another strong year for the market, but he expects a correction in the first half of the year. And, well, you know, that certainly could be likely, a little profit-taking after the end of this year, but we'll see. Anyhow, Mr. Lee says the S&P should end around 3,800, and he certainly wouldn't lie about that, I'm sure. It's at 3,709 yesterday. And he sees stocks eventually jumping to 4,300 in the second half of next year. But he expects a dip to 3,500, you know, which is, well, you know, like about 10% in the first half of next year. And finally, uh, the Bank of America Global Institutional Fund Manager Survey this week, well, it's always loaded with lots of stuff, and I thought this one stood out the most. If you go back to 2001, we see that today a net percentage of investors are actually underweight cash. What's this? Now, when they say investors, I'm talking about mutual fund money, large money investors. As the bank points out, this behavior is, and I'm quoting, indicative of an early stage recovery, similar to recoveries after the financial crisis in 09 and the dot-com bubble in 02, unquote. It's similar to all breadth jumps we've see, we're seeing in the indices, and, and these do typically come near the beginning of cyclical bull markets, not near the end. Well, we're going to take another uh, quick break uh, and be back for some closing comments. I appreciate you listening, and I hope you'll come back after the words. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you're listening to Money Management. Good morning, and welcome to the final segment of Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. And uh, just some closing comments here, hopefully to tie things together. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, what did the market do today? Does it really matter? You know, it's just like, what was today's weather? It's going to change, right? Okay. What the market does on any given day rarely matters. Uh, J.P. Morgan puts out a retirement guide. They do it every month, and it's really good. They have a lot of good good gouge in there. And um, they show that if you took out just the 10 best trading days, it would cut the return from the S&P by more than 50, 50%. That means that most days are, well, non-eventful. So you can avoid trying to time the market. It's a waste of time. You can ignore most daily financial news. Oh, yes, you can. And you can stop wasting time checking your account. 
Nassim Taleb, you know, he, he's a guy who came up with the Black Swans uh, back in 2008. Anyhow, he has a study that shows you may have a 93% chance of seeing positive gains if, if you check your portfolio just once a year. I can tell you that the more frequently you look, <laughs> the more you may not want to see what you're looking at. You know, it's just the way things are. Like I said, day to day, day to day means nothing. It's trends. Where are you going generally? And most people aren't very good at timing the market. I think that's especially true when you're trying to sell because people spend lots of time talking about what stocks to buy, when to buy them, but they forget about the second part, which is kind of pretty important too. Because selling is way more difficult than buying, for I think, for a few reasons. We, you know, before you buy, you're thinking clearly and, you know, you're doing the analytics and all that stuff. But once you pull the trigger, it's yours. It's no longer Amazon. It's my Amazon. And now you're emotionally anchored to this purchase price and your profit or loss status can influence your decisions going forward. I think you have two ways to think about selling. You either attempt to max your return or to minimize risk. Neither is right or wrong, and just and neither is going to guarantee you either success or failure. Now, if you're trying to max your return, then you have to be willing to swallow some losses. I mean, that's just the way it is. The reality is that all of the winning stocks get crushed from time to time. And uh, let's uh, look at our hero, uh, Tesla, uh, because if you want all the upside, you have to take all of the downside. Now, this year, just this year, it had its deepest drawdown ever. It dropped 60, 60% from top to bottom, but it's now up 640% for the year. So if you were using any typical risk management strategy, you would have likely have bailed on it. Now, I know this is an extreme example, but it's a good one. So the challenge with this is you don't know if you're holding a giant future winner or shall we say something that might be used for wallpaper. And that's a whole nother conversation. On the other hand, if you're trying to minimize the risk of a large loss, there are things called stop-loss orders uh, that you can use to help protect yourself to the downside. That's if you have individual shares. Now, every time the market reaches new highs like we've had over these last few weeks, the doom and gloomers like to run out with all their bubble theories, don't they? Now, I think that's especially true currently since everyone knows that central banks all over the world have been pumping out money. So the consensus has it, <laughs> and I always love it when the consensus has it because whatever they're saying is usually not accurate, but the consensus has it, this must mean that the market is inflated. And so it wouldn't take much to pop the bubble, right? Well, complex things are always uncertain and uncertainty feels dangerous. Having an answer, of whatever quality makes danger feel reduced. So that's when these people come out spouting all this stuff. Somebody says, oh, that's the answer. I feel better. May not be accurate, but you had an answer. You want firm answers when things are the most uncertain, which is when firm answers really don't exist. Mark is always going to offer you the certainty of being uncertain. Let me say that again. The certainty of being uncertain. You can always count on that. You have to navigate your ship of assets or have help doing so through and over all sorts of economic conditions without letting the market weather affect your route. Now, what we've learned from social media in this last decade, if anything, is that information spreads really fast and false information spreads even fastest because it's more sensational. 
Now, I've been an advisor, and I actually had to calculate this, 47 years. Uh, and through all that time, my clients and I have lived through four stock market drops, which were, of course, referred to as popped bubbles or other clever topics by many pundits at the Times. Now, the most recent, which began last March, was burst, of course, by the global government lockdowns. Before that, we had the onset of the recession in 08, which left the whole world messed up by 09. And before that one, we had the dot-com bubble in 01 and 02. And in 87, we had a one-day 22% drop, so I guess that counts too. Well, all the nice people ask, I mean, I, I can't even tell you how many people ask me this, is... Are we getting next to the next, close to the next top, the next bubble? I got no idea. I mean, I really don't. But I think it's obvious. I don't think it's obvious. I don't think it's inevitable, at least for a good wire. A review of market history, which I like to do, together with the current setup of the markets, can help you put the current situation in better perspective. What I've found, the show, is that over long financial history, things just keep getting better and better. You know, it's that mountain chart that you see. You know, where, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, here was the price, and now here it is over here, and invariably it's higher. The occasional bumps can be a little painful, but they've always been overcome thanks to free markets, free trade, and the incentives of capitalism. You all know capitalism. And while monetary policy's never been as easy as it is today, I think that's totally accurate. Other important measures of financial and economic well-being are out of line with what we've seen over my career. And anyone trying to make this seem similar to 1999 likely was not in attendance during that period. Because this is nothing at all like that. Nothing. And, you know, it's... Well, it, a perfectly normal characteristics characteristic of bull markets is that some days... Stocks don't go up in price, believe it or not. And sometimes they even drop. And then they go back going higher. Those are called uptrends. And they usually consist of higher higher lows and higher highs. In other words, you know, once you hit this high and it drops, well, it doesn't go down necessarily to where it started. It goes down and then that's a higher low, they call it. And then it moves up from there. You know, you can go back and see for yourself. It's pretty consistent. And, and by my observation, that's the type of environment we're currently in, well, that we've been in. The Fed believes, and I agree, that we still have a way to go before the labor market is healed, to where it was before the stupid virus reared its ugly head. Where we differ is that our belief that inflation will rise and stay above the Fed's target longer and sooner than perhaps it currently expects. In turn, that could lead the Fed to raise rates before their 2023 estimation. In the meantime, in the meantime, the artificially low interest rates definitely remain a major bonus for stocks, which we believe remain undervalued and poised for continued growth in the years ahead. I certainly hope everyone has a very fine Christmas, a spectacular, healthy and happy New Year, and that the zags go wire to wire. <laughs> so, thank you very much for listening this year, folks. Again, I won't be here until next year because next week is Christmas. We won't have a show. Our next show will be 2nd of January. So, come back and listen live and in radio color at that time. <laughs>
And again, thank you very much for having listened this year. I totally appreciate it. My name is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group, and you're listening to Money Management. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their perspectives, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.